Um, man, what a great song uh, that we can be sure how magnificent and unending the love of God is. That is such a marvelous word. Um, if you will, go ahead and turn into your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Um, for those of you who uh, may not know me, uh, my name is Jacob Reed. I'm one of our Sunday school teachers here and otherwise member at large. Um, we're finishing our 12-week study here in Romans chapter 12, and we may be tempted to think that we're landing the plane uh, here at the end of November and, and getting ready to go into our Advent season and then moving on to whatever the new year holds. But uh, my belief is that really these final verses are the take, taking off point, right? Um, that these are, these are the true test in determining whether we live a life according to Christ. Um, much like my belief that verse 9, a call to genuine love, is one of the most important, pivotal moments in this chapter. Um, what Paul calls us to, or rather our response to his call here in verses 19 through 21, um, shows us what it truly looks like to live like Christ and whether or not we are doing that. Um, I think that these are some of the most challenging verses, not, not in terms of how complex the concepts are, uh, but the, the degree to which we are called to follow Christ. Um, and so that's, that's, that's what we have this morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to be a, a difficult time, I think. Um, but but as, we, as we look at these verses, we need to remember um, to ask the Spirit to speak to us through His Word um, and to stir our hearts. So with that, let's look at these, let's look at these verses. So we're Romans chapter 12, verses 19 uh, through 21. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these verses this morning, um, and we see that you are calling us to, to live a life of total devotion to Christ. Um, we ask that you would speak into our hearts this morning through your word, uh, through your spirit, uh, that we would grow more into the likeness of your son. We ask that you would, would reveal its true meaning to us. Uh, Father, we, we are mindful of what Paul writes uh, at the end of Philippians chapter 3, that if in anything we live contrary to your spirit, that you will reveal it to us. And we ask that you would do that uh, this morning. So Father, let, let us be like Jacob when he would not let go until you blessed him. We ask that we would not let go of you um, until we've attained your image. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Our first point this morning is really a summary of the past 11 sermons in this series, uh, which is this. Uh, it's a reminder of the character that we are called uh, to take on in Christ. Uh, in this part of the chapter, in the second, second half of Romans chapter 12, Paul is so concerned uh, with our character in Christ that often the, the verses 9 through 21 are called the marks of a true Christian. Um, 
So to understand what that really means, we'd need to go back through the, the whole chapter. And I hope uh, that, that you've not grown tired of hearing Romans 12. Uh, being a teacher uh, comes with the territory that repetition is necessary. Um, and so we're, we're going to continue in that uh, this morning. So our first clue as to the character that we're supposed to take on is found in verse 1, where Paul writes that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices uh, to, to God. Um, in writing to a church in Rome, this is a really strange statement for Paul to make, to be a, a living sacrifice, particularly in the way that he refers uh, to Old Testament law. Uh, clearly, Paul is pointing back to the sacrificial system. But we all know that by definition, a sacrifice cannot be alive, right? To sacrifice is to kill something. Uh, So what is Paul saying? Well, first of all, he's referring to the fact um, that we once were dead, but now we're alive in Christ, right? We've we've achieved uh, eternal life through Christ. Along with that, we will never be put to death, truly, right? Our life in Christ is eternal, Um, as opposed to the animal sacrifices, right? Um, However, Paul's also saying, he's saying we're alive, but he's saying here's how we should live as actual sacrifices. Um, This is a clear call to live in the way that Christ did. Christ gave up everything. He gave up his divinity to, to, well, he did not give up his divinity. He, he He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but came to serve, um, constantly lived in a way that served and worshiped God and others, and that's how we're called to be. The question is, how do we accomplish that? Uh, in verse 2 of Romans 12, Paul says, it's not by being conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. How are our minds renewed? It's through the Holy Spirit. Uh, if in verses 19 through 21, Paul tells us not to seek vengeance for ourselves, isn't seeking vengeance, seeking to avenge ourselves the way of the world? Well, how do we avoid that? By having the mind of Christ, right? Is this not difficult for us in our American society where we want to put our own individuals, our own individual desires before the desires of, or cares of anyone else, often at the expense of following Christ and trying to exhibit and embody his character? Um, and I say this from the position of someone who struggles with this greatly, right? I, I, I uh, say this from a position of personal greed and desire rather than, than someone who, who would live this perfectly, uh, right? But if we are to have any hope in living a life imitating Christ, we have to recognize the gospel transcends everything on earth. It transcends our society, it transcends our culture, it transcends our personal desires. Otherwise, if we don't have a gospel mind, we won't be able to do what Paul says in verse 2, which is discerning the will of God. We won't be able to determine what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, And if we think like the world, we cannot think like Christ, right? Or have any any ability to any, any hope, any chance of living out the rest of chapter 12 will be, will be useless. That's why in verse, chap, in verse chapter, in verse three, right, Paul tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Um, instead, we should have a right view of ourselves. Having a right view leads us to better service within the body. Uh, this is the point that Paul is, makes in emphasizing the many different members, 
right? The body cannot function if one member is highlighted over the others. Uh, it only functions when everyone acts according to uh, the gifts they've been given, uh, not in an effort of pride, but in an effort of, of serving and caring for one another. Um, as a side note, right, we have many different serve teams at this church, many different opportunities for everyone to actively serve in some way, right, whether that's uh, on the soundboard if you don't want to be behind a microphone or making coffee for our parents of newborn kids whose children are teething and they wake up 2.30 in the morning, right? Um, or if it's just greeting someone or taking care of the kids in the nursery or any, anything, right? If it's praying for our body, there are ways every member can actively serve like we're called to here in this chapter. Um, and so I would encourage you to, to do so. Um, as I spoke to you last month, uh, the last time that I was up here, our ability to live out verses one through four depend, exclu- not exclusively, but depend on, heavily on verse nine, where Paul says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Do we have a sincere love for Christ? Do we have a sincere love for the body? If not, then as I said then, I'm gonna say it again to you today. If we don't love Christ, we don't love his body, we've lost We have no hope of living a true life of righteousness conformed into the image of Christ. We have no hope of building his kingdom. It's that simple, right? If we we do not abhor what is evil, if we do not cling to what is good, how can we claim to be a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God? How can we claim to not be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed if we don't love God and love the body, as we've been called to do? How can we claim to, uh, to have a right view of ourselves? How can we build each other up? How can we serve the body if we don't love genu- genuinely, if we don't love sincerely? The obvious answer is we, we can't. We can't, right? Not without the Spirit working within us, empowering us to love Him, to love each other, to live according to the image of Christ. Right? And so we're called to live in this way in response to our new identity in Christ. Based on our love for Christ and one another, uh, we should be imitating uh, Christ by showing honor, honor to one another, by being fervent in the spirit and serving the Lord, uh, by being steadfast in our faith, by showing hospitality to one another. We see this in verses 10 through 13. However, if we're being honest, that's all easy, Right? It's easy to love people, Uh, especially if they love us. Think about what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 33, right? Christ says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Loving people who love us is an easy concept. Serving people who serve us is easy. Loving God when we get some benefit from it sounds easy, right? Which is why we should both be thankful and intimidated by verses 14 through 21. Because this is the real test of our faith. These are the real marks of a true Christian, whether we live like Christ or not. Uh, Look at what Paul says in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I don't want to do that. Look at verse 15. 
uh, sorry, verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. I don't want to live in harmony with other people if they're annoying or their, their, their will is against me, right? I, I automatically don't want to do that. Uh, in verse, continuing in verse 16, he says, do not be haughty, don't be prideful, associate with those who are low. Never be wise in your own sight. I want to be wise in my own sight. <laughs> so, so much so that my friends make fun of me for it constantly when we hang out, right? Um, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, uh, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is not the natural inclination of our hearts, Right? We want to pursue the things that feel good. We want to pursue the things that are easy. We want to love those who love us. It's natural to live that way. So how do we, how do we not? Well, it's through the beginning of the chapter, right? It's through the, the character that we're called to have in Christ. Uh, to be living sacrifices, to be filled with the Spirit, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds through the gospel, and to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Right. Last week, uh, uh, before I, I get to that, uh, I think that this is an important point to make. My impression, based on my limited experience, I'm not necessarily the most experienced person in the room, um, but, but my observation is so we often forget that Christ calls us to harmony with all of society and not just Christian society. Right? But that's what he's saying. Live peaceably with all. Last week, uh, Kyle read the first part of Jeremiah 29, where God's telling the Israelites, taken into exile, they were taken captive, their nation was destroyed by the nation of Babylon, and God said, pursue the welfare of the city. Pursue the good of those who literally just destroyed your nation. We need to remember that the same applies to us, right? America is not the promised land. We're called to live, our, our, our calling is to, to spend eternity with Christ on a new earth. That's not where we live. We are also in exile. So when Paul is saying, live honorably, live peaceably with all, that's, we also are in exile. This is not our true home. We see this even in Christ. He self-exiled himself for our sake. Philippians chapter two, verses four through seven. We've read this many times in the past uh, few months, Paul writes, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ, who had everything, gave up everything for our sake. And yet, I'm the one who doesn't want to take a few hours of my time to help my neighbor. I hope that the, the inconsistency in the way that we want to live is, is clear. I mean, just think about your own desires and experiences. Um, Christ served both those who followed him as disciples. He served those who just wanted some bread and some fish or just wanted to be healed and go about their day. He served everyone. Uh, Matthew 6 Chapter 6, verse 45, it says, this is Christ saying, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. 
right? So the, the call to live in harmony with all, the call to be peaceable with all, means with all. Based on the example we have in Christ, why would we live any other way? Well, the answer would be that we are not pursuing him, if that's true of us. We can be very strongly tempted to live according to our own wisdom, apart from everything that Paul's already laid out in Romans chapter 12. Uh, But as I mentioned before, this is especially so when faced with this command here in, in verse 19. Never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. This brings us to our second point and some very necessary reminders. Our second point is that salvation is from the Lord. And with that, I've broken this up into a, a few different subpoints that are going to be up here and that I'm going to talk through, uh, uh, not necessarily systematically, but I'm going to talk over them. We need to remember that salvation from the Lord, the people who receive that is us, as God's people. And so in the receivers of salvation, we need to recognize that we have a call to faith and trust in God. We have a call to repentance of our own sins, and we have a call to imitate Christ. Uh, But we also need to remember that the agent, the person who causes salvation, is God himself through Christ. When examining my own heart, I tend to respond in very particular ways uh, to situations I think are wrong and unjust, and that's I tend to have a very visceral reaction. Like I just feel uh, very angry often uh, whenever I feel like something is wrong uh, to the sense that I get overly upset. Uh, I fail to think clearly. I feel literal heat rising to my head. I think, I think that we all have experienced that at some point in our life. If I feel like either someone I care about, such as a family member, a close friend, or even myself has been wronged in any way, my immediate temptation is to respond emotionally. My belief and observation is that this is a natural way for us to react. Um, We can easily see this in our society. For example, think about how easy or how common it is for someone to sue someone. I'm reminded of this every day when I drive down McFarland Boulevard to work or anytime I go anywhere in Alabama and I see the billboards of Alexander Shannara, right? You've been wronged. Hire me to sue them for you so you can get money. I also am reminded partially or primarily because uh, uh, my wife and I are teachers, but just of how much bureaucracy teachers have to go through not to be sued for what happened with their child or for the school system not to be sued for whatever happened. There, there are many other examples that we could, could think about beyond that. But what do all of these examples have in common? They have in common us trying to deliver ourselves from some kind of negative situation, from whatever wrong has been done to us. It's us seeking to avenge ourselves. Doing that is trying to take salvation into our own hands. Let me explain what I mean. Often we think that salvation in Christ is only being saved from punishment for the sins that we've done. That's often the only way we think about it. But if we think about the end of Revelation, where Christ creates a new heaven, all of creation is made new. Everything is saved from the brokenness of sin. Everything. And so when we try to seek vengeance, we're trying to create a, an early new earth for ourselves. We're trying to put ourselves into the seat of God in exacting justice. 
enacting justice. Uh, salvation from God in its most complete sense is a rescue from the broken world that we live in, not just escaping punishment. To, to further illustrate this, I want to ask you to consider the nation of Israel from the book of Exodus when they were enslaved in Egypt. And there are two things that I want us to, rather, there are several things that I want us to think about here. The first one is how Moses first tried uh, to advocate for the nation of Israel and help them in their affliction. Uh, so after enjoying a life of luxury in Pharaoh's palace, he was walking about one day, he's learned more about his identity as an Israelite. He sees an Israelite worker being beaten by an Egyptian officer, and what does he do? He murders the Egyptian overseer and buries him in the sand, thinks nobody's seen anything. He sought vengeance for what was done to his people. But yet we know by reading the book of Exodus that actual event drove him into exile away from the position where God had put him at that time. What happens later? God sends him back and then God rescues his own people from affliction permanently, not temporarily. Uh, this is one of the most prominent examples of God giving salvation to his people in the Old Testament. Here Paul writes, never avenge yourself. Moses sought to avenge his people. But what does he say after that? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord rescued his people. So we're never to seek exact satisfaction. We're never, we're, we never seek to exact uh, or enact satisfaction for a wrong done to us by punishing the wrongdoer. How can Paul say this? Because of what God has already done and continues to do uh, through his promises and through Christ, right? God says, vengeance is mine. When we seek recompense for the wrongs done to us, not that there aren't situations where maybe that is appropriate in certain, certain instances, but if that's our automatic response, we're consistently taking salvation into our own hands as Moses tried to do, rather than leaving it to the work of God. It's within the context of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt that God actually says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Uh, Paul's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we'll look at in just a second, right? God intentionally made a way for his people to be delivered from Egypt, just as he intentionally sent Christ to be the final sacrifice for sins. God intentionally sent, sent judgment on Egypt for their oppression, oppression of Israel, just as Christ will return a second time to enact judgment on the whole world for its sin. However, there's a warning here, right? This is the call to repentance. Let's remember what Israel did as soon as they were taken out into the wilderness, as soon as they escaped slavery in Egypt. They created a golden calf, or rather it came out of the fire. They consistently grumbled and complained in the wilderness. They later worshiped the gods, the idols, of the people who inhabited the land of Canaan consistently sought their own welfare and riches rather than serving others, as Paul tells us to do in Romans 12. They became distracted and replaced God with other things. In response to their idolatry, God warns of vengeance that he's preparing for them. I want to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 34 through 35. When we, when we look at this, remember that God is referring to judgment that he has stored up for his own nation, his own nation. Listen to what the Lord said through Moses. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? When we think about a treasury, we don't necessarily think of it being filled with wrath and judgment, do we? And yet God is telling Israel, that's what I have stored up. 
It's what I have stored up. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Who is God's vengeance directed towards when he says vengeance is mine? Well, it's directed towards his enemies. But who is his enemy here in these verses? Uncomfortably, right? This is very uncomfortable. He identifies his enemies as his own people, the nation of Israel. What does this mean for us? It means that when we try to take salvation into our own hands, when we seek vengeance for ourselves, we seek the place of God. This is, this is the sin of Satan, is it not? Wanting to supplant the, the creator and become the, the one who is in control of all things. When we live in a way that says that the workings, the efforts of God are not sufficient, we set ourselves in opposition to God. When we live in a, uh, this, is, this is how Paul identifies seeking to avenge ourselves as sin against God, right? Do we really want to live in contest with the maker of the universe? No, I don't, I don't. In living according to Christ's character and seeking to have sincere love for God and one another, we cannot ever dare to put ourselves in God's place. They're contradictory to each other. It may seem easy to leave judgment to God, right? Okay, I'm not gonna seek judgment for myself. I'm gonna leave it to the Lord. Great, now I don't have to do anything. This is not what Paul is saying to us at all, right? It seems easy to leave it to God, but it's not as easy as we'd like to think when we realize the behavior we're called to exhibit instead, which is loving that enemy and seeking their good. Consider these verses from the Sermon on the Mount. This is from Luke chapter six, verses 27 through 31. Uh, We heard this last week as well out of Matthew. Christ says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is a picture of totally seeking the welfare of a person who is doing wrong to us. But is that not the example that we have from Christ? Uh, For another example, look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. When we could do nothing, Christ died for us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Right? Paul's even saying we'd, our natural inclination is not to give up ourselves for other people. We want to seek our own good. We don't want to sacrifice for somebody else. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When we were God's enemy, God God had every reason. He would have been perfectly justified. The only person who would ever be perfectly justified in seeking vengeance for the wrongs done 
but yet he, he didn't seek revenge. He sought reconciliation by sacrificing everything, by, uh, uh, by Christ living a life of total devotion for us, right? Verse 11, Romans 5, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, Paul writes out elsewhere in the New Testament, we're called to a ministry of reconciliation. The ministry we're called to in Christ is to bring others into the kingdom. Well, how can we, how can we do that if we are not loving our enemies? Because Christ showed unparalleled grace and mercy to us when we're in a position of opposition, we should show grace and mercy to those who are opposed to us. Because we've been reconciled to God through Christ, how small of a thing it should be to seek the good of our enemies when we consider what's, what's been done for us and what uh, situation we would be in if Christ hadn't done that. If we can truly trust God that he will seek vengeance on our behalf, then we're truly free to live the way that Christ lived. And our motivation to avenge ourselves disappears. Rather than sitting, seeking to sit in God's judgment seat, we're free to seek the reconciliation of others to Christ so that they themselves can stand before the throne, not in judgment, but with confidence in their Father. Looking at verse 20, there's an image here that Paul uses of heaping burning coals on the heads of our enemies. And to me, this is both very interesting and also extremely strange, right? I don't know that I've ever seen anyone try to literally heap burning coals on somebody else's head. So I want to take a few minutes to discuss uh, what in the world Paul is saying here. Um, Paul here is directly quoting Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22, which says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The first thing I want to point out here is that the idea of loving our enemies and seeking their good is not a New Testament thing. This is all the way back in the Old Testament. I think that's a, a, a useful reminder that a lot of the character we're called to in Christ in the New Testament, we see in the Old Testament as well. Uh, but many commentators have noted that this heaping coals on their head could be a reference to an Egyptian practice of someone literally carrying coals on their head in response to something wrong that they've done. The coals would symbolize that person's feelings of shame and guilt that are burning within them, much as the, the coals themselves are burning. However, this also comes across as an image that we could associate with judgment, which is not wrong. Consider these verses from the Song of David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22. This is verses 7 through 9. This is a song that David wrote after God delivered him from Saul. David writes, In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then, so David's calling out to God for deliverance. Verse 8, Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked, because he, the Lord, was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth Glowing coals flamed forth from him. In this passage of judgment, we, from God, we see burning coals coming forth from the throne of God as part of an act of judgment against David's enemies. So we can see two things here, right? Uh, the tradition that burning coals represent guilt and shame. 
We see from 2 Samuel that they represent the judgment of God, but there's a more important third thing that the coals represent, which is repentance and purification of sins. Consider these famous verses from Isaiah chapter 6. These are verses 1 through 7. This is Isaiah speaking. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, being Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why does Isaiah say, Woe is me? Because he's afraid of the judgment of God, because he recognizes he is in opposition to God due to his sin. But what happens? Verse 6 Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. When Isaiah stood before the throne of God, he recognized he was not worthy to be in his presence. When he cries out because of his sin, what happens? An angel brings a burning coal, this image of guilt and shame, this image of judgment, but here it purifies him. We can see through this, the act of serving our enemies may be a sign of judgment, of God coming for them. God clearly says, I will enact revenge, I will enact judgment on those who are opposed to me. But Paul is also telling us, uh, can create a sense of guilt and shame within them for the purpose they might repent of their sins and turn to Christ. That's the goal. And is that not the chief aim of our faith and of our Christian walk? to bring others in this broken world into uh, the flock of Christ. One of my old youth pastors consistently would say, leadership is following Christ and taking others with you. Is that not what we're called to do in loving our enemies, is bring others into the kingdom? This aspect of repentance is what truly motivates us to seek the good of our enemies, right? Because we could say, okay, I'm not gonna seek vengeance, but I don't have to deal with that person anymore, right? That's not hating them. That's not what it it says at all. We don't just live, live our own life and let God take care of the wrongs done to us. No, we are called to give them food, to give them water, to give them everything that they need. Bringing others into the kingdom of God is what should spur us on to do good works, to love our enemies, to serve one another, um, if we're not loving our enemies, we seriously need to consider, do we love Christ? Have we responded to Christ who loved us as his enemies and gave up far more than we ever could? This brings us to our final point as we close this morning and as we end our time in Romans chapter 12. That's uh, that we need to persevere and endure need to persevere and endure. Verse 21, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Every time I read this, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, 
specifically verse nine from Galatians six comes into my mind. Uh, but I want, I want to read, read all four of these verses to you. In Galatians, Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When it comes to how we deal with our enemies, do we want to sow seeds that are only beneficial for ourselves, or are we seeking the kingdom? Look at verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will, we, we, we will reap. We may also weep, but we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul has to remind us to not grow weary. 2020 is a year of being tired, right, for everyone. Just due to everything that's going on, those of us that have had children, doubly so, being a parent, as you all know, it's very tiring, right? But do not grow weary in doing good. It is not easy to overcome evil with good. It's not, right? What's our reaction? To try to seek vengeance as opposed to love, (laughs) right? With a call to follow Christ, to be conformed to his image, to imitate him in our lives, is not easy, which is why we should be thankful for the Spirit working within us. This is why we must be diligent. We must be disciplined. We must be careful to not give up. Often I think we can become easily discouraged by the evils we see in the world around us, Uh, but we should be encouraged by the fact that God is at work. We sang it earlier. His love is sure. We have assurance in God. He says, it is mine we know that he will pursue it. So, will we live according to Christ? Will we be sacrifices, living sacrifices that are good and acceptable? Will we allow our minds to be transformed by the gospel? Will we serve one another out of love? Will we serve our enemies in the way that Christ has served us? Or will we seek our own good? Will we seek our own wisdom in this broken world? Will we walk in step with the gospel or will we walk as an enemy of God? We're not above being God's enemy, just like the nation of Israel wasn't. What we are called to is clear, right? So let us not think that this morning is the end for what we're called to in Romans 12. This is the time to push each other forward into the image of Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for this word, uh, both for these verses where you've called us truly to live like you. You've called us to love our enemies. uh, And and we ask that we would do that in response to you loving us as your enemy. You gave up everything for us. And we ask that we would be able to do even a a small part of that uh, to those who have wronged us. We ask that we would have your mind we would be aligned with your will, that we would not love this world, uh, but that we would love you and your kingdom. And so this morning, we just ask that we would constantly be reminded of this, that we would serve one another, that we would love you, and we would love your body. Father, we just ask that your spirit would continue to work in us, that we, that we would be able to do this. We just ask this in your name.
Amen.